0: i you.
1: All right, if you come on in and have a seat, we'll get started. Welcome to everyone this morning. uh, I'm riding solo today as far as uh, the elders because Austin and his family are in Kingsport. So... uh, hope they have a good time on this weekend. So I don't have many announcements. I really just have uh, one or two. So let me go ahead and read these for you. So next week is our Haven Ridge yard sale. And for those of you that are just arriving to the game, basically what what we've done is we've adopted a room in the uh, Shepherd's Gate program for Miracle Hill. And what that allows us to do is have... uh, at inter, I would call it interpersonal access to the lives of these women that are there. Specifically, the women of Haven Ridge will have interpersonal access uh, with these ladies there to be able to disciple them, to connect with them, to meet needs. Uh, I know that the uh, Shepherd's Gate and Renewal Programs are meeting uh, some of the physical needs there, and our aim is to partner with Miracle Hill in helping to meet some of these spiritual needs. Uh, there's... Doors that have been open to do Bible study there, discipleship there, and all these kind of fun things. So that's why we've adopted that room. Uh, I think we we spent uh, somewhere around uh, three hundred to four hundred dollars on that. So all that to say, because we don't have a lot of money, this this uh, yard sale thing is to replenish what we spent to do that, and to hopefully allow for us to continue to give uh, and to do things like that. Uh, you know. Um, As often as we can. So, so that, yes ma'am. Yes, yes, for, for the online audience, uh, we have prayer cards. I know that you can't get them if you're online right now, that's fine, but there are prayer cards here. Um, Natalie, you said for, for these ladies in the program that are going to be entering into the program. So if you'll, Come and grab one of those. One per family would be great, uh, and commit to uh, commit to praying for the opportunities that are going to be there. So I know we're kind of limited with space. It's a good thing we have several families out doing the Mother's Day weekend thing. So, um, so we're glad that uh, we're glad that you are here, though. So anyway, so that yard sale's next week. Now specifics on that: it will be eight to twelve. You'll notice that some people have already brought some stuff here. Uh, you can. Here's how we're going to do this. If, again, you've kind of forgotten about this and you discover that you have some stuff that you would like to donate so that we can sell that, uh, contact me. Uh, Jamie is going to be here early Thursday, so you could bring it Thursday to him because he'll be here getting stuff set up uh, Thursday. So you can contact him if it's Thursday. If you want to come and drop stuff off before that, just contact me or, or Nathan or Jamie or, or Austin, anyone who can let you into the building. That'll be absolutely fine. I realize that we all have hectic schedules, and some of uh, for some of us, the last thing we're thinking about is gathering a bunch of our stuff to sell. I get it. Uh, so uh, if you come up with something and you want to do that, just let us know. Um, let us know, and we can let you in here, and you can put stuff here, and everything will get set up on Thursday. But after Thursday, it's uh, it's too late because this thing's happening on Saturday. So that's next Saturday, 8 to 12, but we're also doing the barbecue plates. If you want to do have a barbecue plate, Stephen and Jamie will be barbecuing, we will be uh, smoking meat. If you want that, you need to let them know. Several people have already let them know, but you need to let them know if that's something that you want, okay, uh, so that we can know that we have enough. Anything else on that, Jamie? Is that good? Okay. So, all right. So, happy Mother's Day to you mamas in here. We have a lot of mothers in here representing different contexts. You know, we have mothers that have children that are old, that are grown and gone. Uh, We have have mothers that... a, A lot of our mothers not some became mothers and others uh, um, became mothers twice or three times over during the whole, whole COVID thing. So it's been an interesting 2020 to 2021. I think we had five, four or five babies born during uh, during COVID, you know, five. So <laughs> so uh, when we opened the doors again and everything started getting back to normal, nursery was not to normal. So it's, uh, it's a bit overwhelming uh, in a good way, especially since we, we can't yet get back into Little Me Academy. I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing that. I don't want to press her. So uh, for those of you visiting with us, this kind of looks more like a family integrated style, which we don't have a problem with that in the world. But uh, normally we have children downstairs who are downstairs now, and we have them that go over to this building behind Jamie over there at the window. Um, And so that makes for more space. But as it is for now, we're a bit family integrated, which is for me been nice, but I'm not sitting there holding a baby I understand that so um, but anyway, so special love offered to you mothers of, of, of all types of all stages of life. Um, we truly believe that that the role that God has given you is even though so many mothers experience it, it is unique to you. it is unique to being a mother and it is a privilege. Uh, children are a gift, motherhood is a gift. And uh and, and and you ladies wear that responsibility very well here at Haven Ridge. So it is encouraging for me as a man to not only watch my wife, but to watch uh uh you you mothers out there in fulfilling that role that you have. And uh and thank you for being faithful in your motherhood. Thank you for being a faithful witness, thank you for the investment that you make into your children. Uh you know, it's it's it really is encouraging to see because At Haven Ridge, one of our deep convictions is seeing healthy biblical motherhood and biblical fatherhood being fostered, being nourished, and and carried out. And it's not always easy, you know. Uh, As I think about being a father, I don't know about you mothers, but some of my biggest blunders and failures are in the context of me being a father because I feel like I'm always having to ask my kids forgiveness. Just yesterday, um, I came down on Wesley a little strongly, and I was like, ah, I think I was— I think the reason for me being frustrated was okay, but the way that I, the way that that was fleshed out in my behavior was not so sort of set down. So a lot of times motherhood and fatherhood is repenting, apologizing, making things right, you know, but I think that's an important aspect of parenthood, you know, so, uh, so anyway, we're thankful for you mothers. We hope that today is a fabulous, fabulous day. Uh, don't have a motherhood sermon. I did talk last week about you know, distinctive roles in the marriage relationship, so that could kind of be a motherhood sermon, I guess. But, uh, but today is a little bit different, so just hold on to your to your seats there. Um, I, I know, I know. We'll talk about that, uh, you know. So, anyway, I'm going to read this. Uh, I'm going to read a passage of scripture, and uh, after I read that, April's going to going to pray to uh, to introduce our 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 call to worship or this will introduce our call to worship. And she'll pray to close that. So I want to read for you Psalm 136. It's a, uh, it's a popular psalm, one that you would be familiar with. Um, very repetitive, but very appropriate. So let me just read this over you, and let's let the Word of God wash us and uh, prepare us to enjoy Christ together. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords for his steadfast love endures forever to him. Who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever to him. Who by understanding made the heavens for His steadfast love endures forever to him. Who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. You see a theme here, right? The author is really wanting you to understand the heart and the love of God and all that he does, you know, in his creative powers, in his sovereign powers, in the things that he oversees. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And I think the author wants you to understand very clearly that even though God would bring about plagues on Egypt, that doesn't negate his love. Because a lot of people want to attack that as far as the nature of God and say, what loving God would do this? What loving God could do this? But the Bible labors to show you that everything he does is rooted in love. Now, we have a very humanistic perspective of that. We say, how could that be love? But we have to understand that God's love is for God is for his glory. So all things that he does has to be rooted in his love for his glory. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings, his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever, and Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever, and gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. A few more. It is he who remembered us in our low estate for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever.
2: Father, thank you so much for the opportunity for us to come together today. And um, I know right now, a lot of places in the world, this isn't allowed. Um, So I, I pray especially for those people this morning who are either worshiping online or underground somewhere, Lord, I pray that you would give them strength and courage to continue on. And um, this morning, especially, I also pray for mothers. Um, It is a gift. Uh, This job, this job is hard, but this job is a gift. And I pray for strength and patience and just the, the strength to wake up each morning and continue this this very difficult but wonderful, wonderful job that you've given us. Um, And I pray this morning that during the worship that we would forget all of our worries and we would just give them to you and that we would be able to focus on your goodness and your mercy and your grace and your love for us. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: you'll come up and pray for our missionaries.
3: Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful this morning for your great love. As Alan read to us in the Psalms this morning, you love us far beyond what we could ever comprehend or what we could ever deserve. And as we heard in the theme of the songs this morning, it is a great mystery why Christ would choose to be obedient even to the death on a cross. And as we discovered in the Easter season that has just passed us by a few weeks ago, Christ lived a perfect life. He was willing to die on a cross, be buried, and to rise again on the third day for me. And that mystery is overwhelming at times when we ponder what kind of love it would take to sacrifice oneself, not just for a friend or for a loved one, but for one's enemy. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it, but we're so grateful for it. And as we sit here this morning bringing our praise and our worship before you, I pray that What we do would honor and please you, that it would be a sweet-smelling, savory aroma before you, praises from a humble people to a great God. And we're so thankful for the opportunity that we have to spread that gospel here in our own community. We think of the many efforts that our church is involved with, um, specifically the Miracle Hill Ministry and the opportunity there to reach out to women who are hurting I just pray that you would bless those efforts as they have this facility now to be able to uh, accommodate women who would be in a very, very tough spot without it. Thank you for the opportunity we have this week to raise funds for that. And I just ask that you would bless those endeavors this week. I pray for the opportunities we have at the um, abortion clinic to be able to be a light and a testimony there to people who maybe have never heard your gospel or maybe have never heard it presented in a loving way. And I pray for the men and women who go out there faithfully that you would encourage their hearts, grant them new opportunities to be faithful, to be courageous. I pray for our missionaries who go to places all around the globe to share the same gospel, to people who need to hear the great story of a Christ who would sacrifice himself on their behalf to. So I pray this morning as Alan preaches that uh, the picture of love between a man and a wife would be a great picture to uh, us of the love of Christ for his bride, the church, and a great picture of a sacrificial love that calls us to live sacrificially as well. I pray that you would give him calmness, clarity of mind, and focus as he brings the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: All right, kids can be the kids that would go to out there on on the field for their class. You follow Mr. Joey and Miss Natalie, please. seated for for this next song today as we open your word, I pray for clarity for Alan, I pray for uh, peace of mind as he comes to preach something that may seem a bit awkward to, to some of us, so um, as we take your word and we try to apply it to our lives, whether we're married or not,
3: I pray that it would bring us closer to your son, and it's in his name I pray, amen.
1: Well, for, for those of you visiting with us, just to let you know a little bit about what we normally do and where we are, normally we preach through books of the Bible. We, uh, we've done, gone through several in the lifespan of Haven Ridge. Um, we just recently finished the book of John, took us two years exactly, I think two years and two weeks exactly, and I absolutely loved every bit of it. Um, I've learned so much in doing it that way. We preached through the Book of Genesis, which was equally fantastic. Uh, took a while, so anyway, so we kind of hunker down around here and we just we just do it, you know. So, but since we finished John and because we're in between books of the Bible, we decided to take the opportunity to uh, to tackle a, a topic, um, and we so we created this series on marriage. Now, this is this is not an exhaustive series on marriage. You know, we could talk about that for quite a while. I was talking with Austin, our other elder before we even started this series about all the potential things. I wrote out this really long outline, like, oh we could talk about this and this and this and this. And it and it would have had us in the series for quite a while. But you all know me, you know, I, I don't have the gift of conciseness, whether in my preaching or in my outlining. And so the uh, the series was true to true to my character. But we decided on these four weeks to hit some of the highlighted You know, we think marriage is a serious issue. We think marriage is under serious attack and has been for a long time in our culture. So this was our opportunity to speak biblical truth towards God's beautiful design for marriage. The first week, again, for visitors, we talked about the origins of marriage, making a biblical theological argument For the institution of marriage but not just the institution but the paradigm itself how it's structured how it's designed who it's designed for what the outworkings of that design should be we talked about that. Uh, We talked about role distinctions last week in marriage. We talked about the role of the wife, the role of the husband, or the role of the woman, role of the man. We talked about why God designed it that way, what, what it images as far as a bigger picture, because there's putting it under a microscope and looking at all the nuances and the intricacies of what a marriage is, but then there's backing up and looking at the bigger picture, the bigger story, and what it represents. Ultimately, the Trinity, Christ's relationship to the church, and the gospel, those are What we believe very firmly the Bible teaches with regards to what marriage represents now I know not everyone is married in this room Some of you are visiting today and you're like what did we get ourselves into because today's topic today's discussion is going to be around Intimacy and that's one we wanted to put in there because it's a big deal. It's a big deal I've had a lot of conversations not necessarily with people here over the years uh, Who that part of their marriage suffers? greatly for a host of reasons and it's detrimental to the marriage that that aspect of marriage it's detrimental to any marriage that that aspect would suffer because God has given that for very specific reasons and so I'm going to be tailoring my vernacular today that's going to be very g-rated not that i would get up here and say things otherwise i'm not one of these guys that makes sport of something so serious and uh, i'm not going to be up here as someone else who might make jokes of these things you know and treat it lightly that's not what i'm here for Uh, i want to talk about this in a very sober-minded way using Using verbal modesty, modesty in the way that I communicate these things. So I'm going to use the term intimacy a lot, but what I mean by that, and you'll start to put it together based on its context, I mean the whole spectrum. I mean all the way from intimacy that leads to fruit bearingness with regards to children, intimacy that is an emotional connection between a man and a woman. So I mean the full scope of intimacy. So when I use that term, pay attention to the context, I'll try to do a good job of letting you know what I'm speaking of, but the context should speak for itself, okay, with regards to what I mean specifically by intimacy right there. So I'm gonna try to tailor this message in such a way that is very palatable for everyone and very helpful as well. So this is the issue of intimacy in God's beautiful design, restoring the beauty and the privilege of intimacy between husband and wife. For those of you that are not married, I've said this two weeks, I'll say it a third week, just keep in mind that whether you've been married and are not married, plan to be married again, have never been married, about to be married, whatever it is, this is relevant for you. This is absolutely relevant for you because we all know people in our life, whether it pertains to us directly or not, that need to have a biblical worldview with regards to marriage. They must, I mean the divorce rate in Christianity I think is worse if not the same as the divorce rate for the secular world, the world that's not Christian. Something's wrong, there's a worldview problem. There's a worldview issue, there's a way that we approach marriage and I believe, I believe, and maybe this is a generalization, but it just makes sense to me that many people, supposed Christians are approaching marriage from a secular worldview. A secular worldview allows you to cut your losses and move on. A secular worldview allows you to say, well, I've been wrong. I'm going to pack my toys and go home. A secular worldview allows those things because the secular worldview says you deserve to be happy. You don't deserve to be treated this way or to go through this or to endure this or to endure that. Listen, (laughs) what does Christ tolerate from his bride? Just imagine. Imagine the constant adultery that christ's bride commits against jesus this isn't an argument for whether divorce is okay or not that's not even where i'm going i preached on that a long time ago i can send you the notes of that if you want to dive into that or Austin hammers has those notes you can look at you can borrow from him whatever that's not what this is about but this is pointing to something deeper something richer something better and something very 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 serious now i don't have a specific text again we normally walk through verse by verse of the Bible so if you're interested in Haven Ridge and you're like well I want a church that preaches through books of the Bible and your preachers are expositors that's what we aim to be Um, today because of the topic I'm gonna lean on several different places in the Bible Uh, and I've borrowed some of this just full disclosure from a, a, a book that I really love called a gospel centered marriage I use it when I do premarital counseling so I've leaned on that book over the years for some things that it's taught me Uh, it's been a long time since i've read it i can't even remember the author of the book it's been so long but uh so so i've written this and i've sprinkled in some of that book so if you ever read that book, and there's something that you read that you're like, didn't Alan say something just like that? You know, know that I've borrowed some, so I'm not trying to plagiarize anything, okay? So most of my sermons are mine, better or worse, for better or for worse, but today, there are places that I'm gonna lean a lot on the wisdom uh, of those that have taught me in this area. So, but I'll reference this, first of all. We understand, because we've looked at it for two weeks in a row, we understand that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 provides a standard for what we understand as marriage that's your template that's your standard it's your standard for male female marriage it's the standard for what the institution is it's the standard for how the institution operates what the mechanics are it's the standard for instruction it's the it's the standard for action god has made adam he called called adam to name all these animals he named them all Adam realized that he was alone and then Adam does what he realizes he's alone so God causes him to fall asleep God takes his rib and then God forms Eve God forms woman a helpmate suitable for him fit for him we understand that man and woman are in a complementary relationship they fit together like a zipper where the man has weaknesses the woman provides strengths where the woman has weaknesses the man provides strengths we are broken and flawed in our marriages Okay, I know this for sure I know that whatever strengths I'm supposed to bring to the table I don't often rightly bring to the table of my marriage. I understand that that's because I'm a broken human But the ideal situation is Genesis 1 2 where there's this perfect perfectly compatible relationship That's the design. That's what we aim for Just because we live in a Genesis 3 world does not mean that we don't shoot for the Genesis 2 ideal That's our standard that's the pattern and that's what's setting us on a proper trajectory but we also understand that in genesis uh, genesis 1 and 2 after god made eve there was a few commands that god had given to them and one of them was to be fruitful and to multiply now you don't see intimacy spelled out in the genesis account there you know and one could easily walk away and say well that was more of a utilitarian kind of situation that was just by necessity god wanted to uh, fulfill the earth And that was the way he did it. So it could be just that. Some people could walk away saying, well, it's just for that. But then you have to have a biblical theological approach, a proper hermeneutic to consider all of Scripture and say, okay, what else does the Bible have to say as it weighs in on this issue of intimacy between a man and a woman in the context of marriage? And there's a good bit to say. There are restrictions. There are parameters. There are descriptions of a way that a that a husband rightly enjoys the the beauty and the and the, and the design of his wife, and the wife enjoys, you know, the, the the if I can say beauty and design of his husbands. If my wife wants to tell me I'm beautiful, I'm okay with that. You know, that's 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 cool. But if you do say that to me, we you know we got a problem. So. Um, Super athlete, that's cool. That's great. You know, uh your hero, I'll take that as well, but beautiful. Let's uh let's keep that for your for your spouses, right? I do think Christ is beautiful. I do think the triune God is beautiful in every way that is right, in every way that is pure and perfect. But God gave this mandate to Adam and Eve. He says, Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. You see, God gave us intimacy at the furthest farthest farthest Tina help me out farthest level furthest farthest level thank you for nothing Tina back there English teacher <laughs> to its greatest extent farthest level God has given us that he gave us the intimacy that we can enjoy in holding hands with our spouse he gave us the intimacy that we can enjoy connecting emotionally psycho- psychologically mentally with our spouse and just conversation you know, my wife will tell you all day long that, you know, that, that, that meets a big need of her, hers is time spent together, time that is intentional, time where we enjoy communication. Now, it's often interrupted by having to manage four children, but, but we covet that, that time you know and sometimes admittedly we sit there we don't have much to say (laughs) well we've said it all after 16 years not true but you make these efforts but that's a that's a part of intimacy so my argument throughout is that intimacy is not just something that is experienced in a physical sense but something that can be experienced on an emotional and even a spiritual sense and I think there's a reason for that so God gave us intimacy to all extents, not in a utilitarian fashion, not just as a means to an end, but for three specific reasons. One, and I won't be exhausted with these, one is for multiplication, obviously, be fruitful and multiply. And and, and when you back up and you see there's beauty in that, There's beauty in the part that you get to play. We have a room filled with children. We have a nursery filled with children. So all of you with children, you know, and and well, mostly, most everybody in this room has been a part of that level of intimacy, but specifically as it regards to bearing fruit, having children, like the 75 children we had during COVID, right? So you've been a part of that, but back up and just think, okay, just that aspect of it is a part of God's beautiful design because God God wanting to put his own glory on display decided to fill this earth that he is Lord over to fill this earth with image bearers of him so that he could show grace mercy wrath judgment they all play a role in this thing in showing the world the multifaceted multidimensional grandeur of God so fruit-bearingness is not just, okay, well, you know, I've, I've created this for you, enjoy, be fruitful. You know, it's not just so simplistic and so thoughtless. It's something bigger that God is doing. Every child that is born, you yourself standing there, you're created so that you might put on display the glory of God. So it's not just for multiplication, but it's also for Pleasure. I do believe that physically, mentally, emotionally. We'll get into that a little bit later. I think it's also for understanding. Understanding the intimacy that God feels for his children and Christ feels for his church. Now, you have to be very careful. So I want to be very clear with my language here. John Piper wrote a book called, I'll just, I'll say it, it's called, it's called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ okay that's the title of his book I encourage you to read the book and here's why because what he makes an argument for very biblically he makes an argument for for the fact that God has given us that level of intimacy so that we can have a small glimpse into Christ Christ's deep and sincere affections for his church so we don't think of it as Christ loves us in some kind of sensual or inappropriate way no Our greatest understanding, our most intimate connection that God has designed on this planet, on a human level, is what we get to enjoy with our spouses in a marriage context. And God has given that, I do believe, so that we can have a small glimpse into what it is with regards to Christ's affections for his church. All right, so Christ is not thinking of us in that exact same way, but it's still, it's an idea that we can understand, okay, this is the, this is the deepest level of intimacy that that I can experience becoming one flesh. But it's not all the trappings of that that we equate or that we put on Jesus, but it's the concept of intimacy. It's the concept of closeness. It's the concept of relational affiliation of pure love that Christ has for us and that God the Father has for his children. As a matter of fact, it's very interesting that When you look at the opening parts of the Bible where Adam and Eve are made and you have a a line in there that says, as Adam knew Eve or Adam knew his wife, the same word is used there that's used in the New Testament in the book of Romans where Paul is saying for those he foreknew, he also predestined. So these, this knowing is not he knew what would come to pass, but it's a deep, abiding, affectionate, intimate love that God has for his own. It's the same word that's used there. The same word is used there. So I think it's very interesting when you start looking at that, using a proper hermeneutic, looking biblically, theologically, and saying, okay... So this knowing one another in a marriage context is much more than pleasure. It's much more than just fruit-bearingness. It has everything to do with God and and his deep and abiding affections for his own. But you know what has happened? The fallen world has robbed us of what intimacy should be. It's made it a punchline. I mean, it's, it's, it's... it's weird how things have been flipped on their head. It's normative language to step outside of here, to go to your workplaces, maybe not everybody's workplaces, but in general, to go to workplaces. I was an athlete, I mean, I'm still an athlete, but I was an athlete, right, I, would, I was in the locker room. I get it, I get it, I get, I, get, I get the objectification of women through jokes, I get it. I heard it all my life. You know, because because that level of intimacy reserved and designed for a very specific context and a very specific reason is, is flipped on its head. That's what the fall of man did. It perverts everything that God makes. It flips on its head everything that God put up right. And one day those things will be restored I'm not saying intimacy in heaven in that sense, but I'm saying these things will be restored. You know, God will reconcile things to himself and finally come back and restore things, do heavens, new earth, all this great stuff. So, but the fallen world has robbed marriages of what intimacy should be. Intimacy and sexuality has been rec- recreational and made as a means to an end. And for us to treat it that way, Is I think irreverent and inappropriate especially to treat it as the world treats these things sexuality is the drumbeat of our culture but interestingly it's not often the song of the church it's the drumbeat of our culture but it's not often the song of the church let me express what i mean by that is we hear it everywhere we go but without raising your hands those of you who are brought up in church how many times do you recall having a pastor having an elder stand up here like this not that I'm doing a great job by any stretch but to stand up here nonetheless and to talk about the way these things should be you don't hear it that often I mean I've, I've heard it before when I seek these things out I go to find someone who is teaching on this a series on these things like a guy named Tommy Nelson I've watched his whole marriage thing multiple times throughout my life and I and I think it's fantastic as he walks through the Song of Solomon And I sought that out, but rarely do I ever hear a pastor standing up here on any given Sunday and just talking about intimacy, talking about these things as they're supposed to be talked about. So what happens is, because the church is not taking something, and I'm making a generalization just on my personal experience, so don't hear me slamming other churches necessarily, but if this is happening, then yes, I'm slamming. If a church says, we're not gonna talk about that, it's too touchy, it's too uh, you know, it just doesn't make me very comfortable, who do we expect if we're not going to to teach not only us but to teach our children about sexuality our schools will right they will I mean I love Votie Balkam. I don't agree with everything but one thing he did say you send your kids to Caesar don't be surprised when they become Romans Now maybe that doesn't apply in every school situation, I'm not saying that, but there are definitely places across the US especially, where children are being indoctrinated with inappropriate, flipped on its head, unbiblical sexuality. I watched a commercial yesterday. A commercial yesterday, and this is not the same, but in the same vein, where it was just not even snuck in there, it was very blatant. There were two men in a relationship, and one of them talked about, hey, Be sure this and this and this when your child is assigned their gender. I believe in gender assignment before the foundation of the world. That's what I believe. I believe that that's what the Bible teaches. But when I watch TV now, that's becoming normative language. And it's just slipped right in there. And people aren't balking at it. The more truth we know, the more we recognize counterfeit. If you don't know truth, and counterfeit doesn't, doesn't set off alarms for you but I think the church needs to address these issues. I think the church should be able to sit here and say let's have a conversation about intimacy. We're not gonna make jokes. We're not gonna pry into your life and you tell us all your dirty secrets. We're not not trying to do that. We just wanna have a healthy conversation within biblical guidelines and parameters and discuss this issue because it matters for the health of your marriage. Absolutely matters for the health of your marriage, but I think the world has robbed us of the beauty of that in its teaching. The fallen world capitalizes on these things. Fortunes are made on these things. The porn industry just I'll talk about that later but that alone is a hundreds of billions of dollar industry. Capitalizing on what Satan has flipped on its head. You have natural drives in your body. You have a natural design in you for pleasure, for fruit bearingness, and for image bearingness, and all of these things for understanding the great love that God has. And God has made this thing sin, flipped it on its head. Now it's a punchline, and now people are getting filthy rich on it. Addictions occur because of the commercialization and the perversion of these things. Lives are destroyed all without shame. Meanwhile, it seems as though you never hear of intimacy spoken of in its right context, the context of the church. You see, in a church setting, what if you have these new believers looking to be married? Maybe they're newly married, whatever. And this idea of discipleship, we're always discipling, we're always raising up, we're always teaching, we're always leading. If you're doing that and that's your paradigm, that's your mantra, then you're always gonna have opportunity to foster a right understanding of what biblical intimacy is and the right way that that is expressed in its right context. And so what happens is these people come up and they are taught this in the context of the church, whether it's in a home setting, whether it's right here, whether it's believer talking to believer just having conversation, but being rooted in the Bible, being tethered to the Bible, and that's guiding and limiting their conversation in a good way. This is important because then the worldview begins to come together. And then they go out here and they hear this about intimacy, this about sexuality, this about this. All of a sudden that seems wrong. We are inundated with what the world perceives to be right and proper sexuality. If God created it, shouldn't it be the church's place to inform others about it? We have this truth that says, "Look, uh, Genesis really starts here and says these things, and and then you know we can understand. You know, Paul addresses the issue a couple of times, and we see this. The beauty of intimacy is often hidden behind perversion, hidden behind displaced glorification. It's everywhere." you can read about the lives of the celebrities like we care but somebody does you <laughs> can read about the intimate life of any celebrity you want basically this this false sexuality is woven in, woven into the fabric of culture and movies tv music jokes internet clothing commercials anything and everything it's there i can't tell you how many even though i work for a company that is mostly christian I can tell you still the jokes that I've heard that are sexual in nature at a construction site, and there are a ton. It's woven in everything. The porn industry, I said, is one of the most successful industries. And by the way, the porn industry takes these women and men, but mostly these women, gets them addicted to drugs because it's very much associated with the sex trafficking, gets these women addicted to drugs, and demands that they perform or they won't get their fix. So it's been written from a guy who was a videographer for one of these porn industries. He said, I couldn't do it anymore. This isn't even a Christian man. He said, I couldn't do it anymore. Why? He said, because these women would perform, and they would put on screen what the world says is sexuality, and then they would go over in a corner and cry because they were strung out. And we have Christian men and women that indulge in these things all the time. I think the Bible does have a, something to say about intimacy, understood in its right context. When you open up the Bible, and you come to a place like Song of Solomon. There's debate about Song of Solomon. Some people want to say, well, it's allegorical. There's really nothing really intimate happening here. It's just allegorical. It's just a language that is allegorical so that we can understand Christ's affections for his bride. There's others that say it's more cultic language or it's dramatic language, and then others would say it's very literal. I reject that it is purely or exclusively allegorical. Outside of this covenant people context that they would say uh, Saul of Solomon is writing under you have the book of Proverbs which uses the same language same man writing it right King Solomon and you have the same kind of language not in a same context so I think that kind of diminishes the argument that it's just allegorical I've heard before from respected people by the way that there's no way that Solomon would write in that way Because the culture then was a very modest culture, so why would he write in such a way? I'm like, well, the Holy Spirit inspired it, first of all, despite whatever culture they were in. And how could this be wrong to take these things literal or as they're meant to be in a sensual, intimate, heteroerotic fashion? But rather than explaining what all this means, (laughs) what I'm going to do is just read for you, because I'm just reading the Bible. If you take issue with what I've read, you take issue with the Bible, not me, but I do want to read it. I'm not afraid of it. I want to read it. I'm not going to exposit it. I'm not going to expound on it. I'm going to let you hear these words of Solomon and 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 whoever this person is, he's writing about. She expresses love towards him, but he expresses his great love and his attraction. And I want to say all of this is not heteroeroticism for heteroeroticism's sake. This is all rooted in great love that he has for this person. This is rooted in a great way that he finds her beautiful and he's expressing the beauty that he finds in his, in, in, in his beloved here. So just a few things I want to read, just so you can hear the language for yourself because I'm probably sure that most of you haven't spent your quiet time in Song of Solomon in a while. Okay, so this is how he describes this lady. He says, your neck, and man, I would not use this to compliment your wife necessarily. Different time different understanding your neck is like the tower of david <laughs> built in rows of stone on it hang a thousand shields all of them shields of warriors man don't even try that <laughs> i mean it's honey tower of david i'm sorry uh, i i didn't re- I, i'm i'm reading from so- uh, from song of solomon chapter 4 i'm going to i'm going to be bouncing around Says your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle, still strange, but I get it, that graze among the lilies. Moving down to verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates. Pomegranates then were understood to be aphrodisiacs, by the way, with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, Calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. This, all, this language all has significance, but I said I'm not going to expound it. There's, there's a reason he uses the terms that he used. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. And then in chapter 7, he says, your stature... Is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like a, like its cluster. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And this is the kind of language of Solomon. And I know it's kind of awkward to hear. You know, I don't think we're having family devotionals and saying, "Open to Solomon, Song of Solomon, Chapter Seven, please." You know, kids, listen closely. I'm not saying that at all, but I don't think we can deny that there's definitely some sensual language that he's using here. And so what are we to take away from that? Could it be allegorical? Sure. Could there be something there where the bigger picture is he's pointing to his covenant relationship with Israel, which I believe he's speaking of the church? You know, could that be something happening? Yeah. But not exclusively. I don't think without I don't think he's saying that and we're to walk away saying well none of this is literal none of it has anything to do with sensuality or anything like that in a husband and wife relationship I think it I think it it could be both I think it could be both allegorical and literal that's 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 a way that the Bible speaks a lot of the times there's no question I think as to the intention of this language it is sensual He's expressing, through his deep love, his appreciation for the beauty of his beloved. You know, and, and let me say this. I, man, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I would never ask you women this, but man, I would, I would, I would assume that for you to, maybe using a more modern day vernacular, for you to compliment your wife in such a fashion, to show appreciation for beauty in every sense, I just don't think your wife would be like, man, Shut your mouth, you're dumb. Yeah, I don't think she would say that. You know, I think that what Solomon is expressing here is, 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 is his great appreciation for what God has given him. Now, I know he had hundreds of wives and concubines and all that kind of stuff. That's difficult, I get it. But here's something real, and the Holy Spirit decided to let us in on it for a reason. There's a attraction that's happening here. There's something very physical, something very intimate here that's right and pure It's not the only place he says it. Listen to Proverbs 5, just to move to a different context 15 through 20. Drink water from your cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yourself alone. Do not for strangers, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer. Again, probably don't call your wife a deer, um, but a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? The context here is this father, Solomon, is instructing his son, giving wisdom to his son, saying, stay away from adultery, son. He's saying, stay away from a woman that would coerce you into that. Stay away from the wiles of that type of woman or the seduction of that type of woman but delight in the wife of your youth he's saying delight in that way don't just delight in her spiritual beauty and her depth and her conversationalism but delight in everything about her delight in her delight in who she is in every sense and especially physically delight in that One pastor said it this way, he said, the Song of Solomon is a monument to love and beauty to the proper connection between the two of them. The experience of human sexuality is the pedestal upon which the monument securely and audaciously rests. Solomon teaches us that the most ravishing beauty is a consequence of the most desperate love, that the beloved is so beautiful precisely because she is loved you ever wondered you look at a a couple and men or women you look at the lady and you think she's with that guy you know maybe she's maybe she's just beautiful in every way and he's like a troll right you're like what happened here she she lost a bet well you know that's kind of a, a harsh reality what's going on you know and you think what's going on well let's say in a right good context she sees in a good way, in a masculine way, the beauty in him. Maybe he loves her well. Maybe she does find him physically attractive because what's interesting is love has a way of bringing about in the right context this physical attraction. I mean, have you ever met someone? I I, I can give you a personal example. When I was in high school, I never dated this young lady, but I was not attracted to her at all physically. She, we were friends, and she was very godly. And as I got to know her better and developed a, a true friendship, loved her as a sister in Christ, in some strange way, she became more attractive to me. Now we never dated, anything, nothing ever happened there at all. You know, thankfully so, right? But I kind of think of that. I kind of think of that's the kind of scenario that's happening, is these things start, and they're rooted in the purest of ways, in love and right thinking towards one another and, and godliness, which then becomes something that is substantial with regards to intimacy and attraction. So the Bible has a lot to say. The Bible gives us safeguards to these things. And here's what I want to say about safeguards, and this is borrowed from the author of um, Gospel-Centered Marriage. I like the way he worded this. He says, the Bible gives us safeguards just as you heard from uh, Solomon writing to his son not to stop us from being spoiled by intimacy. You know what I mean by intimacy. But to stop intimacy from being spoiled by us. Because what God made was good. And to be experienced in its right confines and context is absolutely good. To experience all, every extent of intimacy is good in its right context. Because God made it such. But these parameters are so that we don't mess up. What God has designed. Because God is looking after his creation and his design. Intimacy is God's creation. Nothing constrained God's creation. He wasn't making best out of bad materials. This is how God made things. It seems God's intention was, again, not just that intimacy would be for understanding... To know the intimacy Christ has for his church, not just for fruit-bearingness, but for enjoyment, for pleasure. Matter of fact, the author of Hebrews speaks towards that level of intimacy. He says, nothing shall defile the marriage bed. Nothing defiles that. Now, we understand that there is something that would defile that. And that's not a contradiction there because he has an intent, but... Paul, or sorry, the the author of Hebrews, whoever that might be, he's writing with the understanding of the scripture that says, no animals, no other people, right? Bestiality is pretty wrong. Gross? Wrong. But there had to be the rule put in place because there are people that do that. There are weird cultic practices that do that. So there has to be these perimeters, there has to be these safeguards so that Intimacy is not spoiled by us that God's design is intact Exodus 22 Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 27 all speak towards no animals So when we say nothing defiles the marriage bed, it's understanding that we are keeping with the rules that God set in place no animals no other people And I don't have to draw a picture right you understand no other people husband and wife not husband Wife, another woman, not husband, wife, another man, or so on and so forth. Adultery is commonly spoken of throughout the Bible, especially the New Testament. We don't have to go through all of that. I think we all know that. Intimacy is not simply a pleasurable activity, but it creates a new reality. We understand, going back to Genesis, that the, hu- that the wife should leave her father and mother and be joined to her husband and the two Sorry, sorry, sorry. The husband should leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. There we go. And the two should become one flesh. There's a oneness reality there. There's a new reality because they've been joined together. This is why that level of intimacy or just, I want to be careful that I'm not drawing, putting you in a lane I don't mean you to be in. Certain degrees of intimacy intimacy outside outside of marriage is wrong, right? We understand what I'm saying there, right? So, So for my wife and I, unmarried, connecting emotionally, that kind of intimacy, absolutely fine. But certain levels are reserved, right? And the reason that it's wrong when you experience certain levels of intimacy outside of marriage is because what happens is you're becoming one flesh with those who are not already covenantally joined this is why adultery is such a heinous sin against God it's a heinous sin against God not only is it a heinous sin against a spouse because you're becoming one flesh with someone other than whom you've covenantally become one with but because you're breaking a covenant made with God himself so there's a it's a big issue the ultimate act of intimacy is an ultimate act of disclosure. So a few things, uh, we'll kinda go through these bullet points to try to bring it to a close here. A few things I wanna say, because I wanna get something helpful and practical with 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 the little bit of time we have left. Intimacy is an act of disclosure, all right? And I think this is important. I talk to couples about this sometimes. It's an act of disclosure. Think about it. In a normal circumstance, it's not easy to become married, go on the honeymoon, and then the events that typically, traditionally, whatever follow. That's not always an easy transition. It's not, it's it's not, you know, without embarrassing anything with, with, with me and my wife, you know, of course I had stomach virus on my honeymoon, so that was a lot of fun. But you think about a moment that you're going to enjoy intimacy with one another. And it involves clothing, it involves lack of clothing and all of that stuff. But I have to mention that because there is a act of disclosure. There is what would be otherwise shameful all of a sudden is no longer shameful. And it's hard to get past that because it's been shameful, shameful, shameful since here. I mean, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They realized they were naked. And then what happens? They covered themselves. God had to kill the first animal sacrifice to do that, which is all foreshadowing to Christ, covering our shame. And all of a sudden in marriage, there's no more shame. But it's still this weird, awkward transition, this awkward Moment why because it's a major act of vulnerability. It's a major act of self-disclosure You are opening yourself up in so many ways to that significant other person and saying here. I am and that's ultimate vulnerability So it's a big deal intimacy needs to be thought of in that way When you open yourself up to such a degree and then that's tarnished or that's burned or it's harmed It's very hard to experience that level of vulnerability again Sometimes we get intimacy wrong in many ways. Strong, healthy intimacy, I would argue, begins long before the clothes come off. My mother always said, (laughs) intimacy begins in the kitchen. And I thought, Mom, you are a sick, twisted woman. Why would you say that? What do you even mean by that? She said that when I was in high school. I'm like, why are you saying that to me? She said, son, intimacy, that's not the word she used, but she says, intimacy begins in the kitchen. A teenage boy just can't process that information coming from his mother, okay? I mean, it's, it's I'm 41 years old, and any time my mother approaches this subject, I'm like, la, 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 you know, I can't handle it, I'm like, stop. Marriage and sexuality are designed to reveal the passionate love that God has for his people, so just as God deals with us gently Intimately affectionately sacrificially and personally so our sexual encounters with our spouse should be the same way Strong good intimacy is not about the quality of technique, but about the quality of a relationship Intimacy has much more to do with the mind than it does the body I would say for you men and we should all know this by now that if you want the best experience when it comes to the fullest extent of intimacy then you need to get it right well before that part t- takes place. You need to get it right on an emotional, spiritual level. You need to connect with your spouses. And I'm not saying this as the poster child for who does everything right. I know what to do. I just don't always do it. You know, if I want to enjoy the wife of my youth, it's not going to be done when she comes home and there's clothes everywhere and the house is disarrayed because then what happens is she feels undervalued or taken advantage of. You know, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, honey. Any chance uh, intimacy is uh, in the future? No, no. Maybe she'll roll her eyes and just leave the room. I mean, this is this is this is real talk. I hope nobody takes this as me being crass or anything. I'm, this is real life. Connecting emotionally ensures a better experience bodily, because otherwise you might run the risk of objectification. Your spouse becomes a means to an end, and that's bad. Sometimes we get intimacy wrong because we get God wrong. Good intimacy is threatened by our idolatrous desires. Intimacy mattering more itself than the person with whom you're enjoying intimacy with is an indication that it has become an idol. And here's the cycle of pressure and frustration, again borrowed from the author of uh, Gospel-Centered Marriage. The husband is not having... He's not enjoying intimacy with his wife, so he is frustrated, and he demands more. The wife feels pressured and possibly objectified, and her desire diminishes, and there's a wicked cycle. Men get frustrated, and that's normally how it works, right? Because why not? Well, emotional needs aren't met, so my desire diminishes. I don't desire you. Why don't you desire me? I'm an athlete. Well, because you haven't met my desires, because you haven't communicated with me, because you haven't connected with me because you haven't invested in me, because I don't feel valued by you, these things really matter to women, okay? They should matter to everybody, but specifically, they matter to women. They matter to my wife, to make less of a generalization. And the spouse—the the cycle is broken when each spouse places their other, their, uh, uh, each other's desires above their own. So follow me with that. The cycle is broken when we say, it's not about what I want, but it's about what you need. It's about what you want, let me look after you, let me take care of you, let me consider you. And if that's a mutual, if there's a reciprocity that happens there, it changes everything. Let me share with you a few common intimacy killers. All right, these are not necessarily indicative to my life, I think they're indicative to reality. Porn. Porn is a romance killer, porn is an intimacy killer, porn is a marriage killer. Porn will destroy you. I didn't write this in my notes, but just do the study. There are links to those who are serial killers, and a large majority of them that I've looked at, you can trace it back to a porn addiction. Porn is wrong because it objectifies and dehumanizes another image bearer of God. Porn kills intimacy because it offers, in most cases, unattainable goals through unrealistic scenarios, which leads to feelings of inadequacy. I've heard of couples that might watch porn together. Bad idea. Horrible idea. For a host of reasons that I won't unpack right now, but you get it. Porn creates new neurological pathways in the brain. Porn is addictive because it floods the brain with dopamine. You and I like dopamine. This is good. When we enjoy something, whether it be pizza or shopping, I like to buy things on Amazon, right? There's dopamine that happens. I know somebody else in here that likes to buy things on Amazon. So it's dopamine. He's like, ooh, I like that. Any of you that ever wonder why I buy these ridiculous little trinkets that really don't add anything to my life? Dopamine. There's a little bit of high I get from buying a little ring that I don't do anything with other than pull it out to show Joey and say look what I bought just wasting my money and he gets frustrated with me that's all I do right dopamine buying things that rush of the brain chemicals happening over and over again require, rewires the brain uh, the brains reward pathway and ultimately changing the makeup of the brain which results in an increased appetite for porn there are decades of studies to substantiate this by the way decades a rewiring of the brain. We learn about this with kids who go through trauma as foster parents. There's a rewiring of the brain because the brain has what's called neuroplasticity. And what happens is you form these pathways. Now they can be undone. That's the good news, but that's what porn does is it creates these neurological pathways. You ever seen a game trail? You ever been walking through the woods and you see this trail, this worn down path where animals come to and fro to get water? That's a pathway, and that pathway is formed because of constant traction back and forth, back and forth what happens when the animals take a new path that trail grows over and that's the good thing about rewiring a brain that has been developed to have these neurological pathways is that they can be it can be rewired because of the neurological plasticity over time the brain fights back taking away some of its dopamine receptors so the more a man or woman looks at porn the more it takes to get high on that addiction But the brain responds and says, I'm not going to release as much dopamine. So it cries out for more. So it pushes and pushes and pushes. This is how we end up with people in gross immorality in the sex trade. This is how we end up with serial killers. This is how we end up with rapists. Because you know what? It probably started with pornography. And they couldn't achieve the same dopamine levels. So it ended up where it was. So over time, the brain fights back, taking away some of its dopamine receptors. This means that it takes more and more to achieve the same dopamine high. This is important. This also means that lesser stimulants fail to stimulate, which is why one porn addict, addicted spouse with, will become less interested in intimacy when it comes to his own spouse. See, someone might think, well, this person's into porn, so maybe they have a healthy, intimate life. Maybe that's their thing when it doesn't work that way, because it's fantastical, because it's unattainable, because it's unachievable, because it's not real life. The porn addict watches these things, has these neurological pathways, has this addiction, has this desire, has to keep feeding it, and what he has at home that's real, that's tangible, that can be very meaningful and God-honorable, just doesn't do it for him or her anymore that stimulant doesn't stimulate him anymore. The good news is because of the brain's plasticity, the neurological pathways that are formed through porn can also be unformed. This process is painful because it rewards, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's painful because it deprives a starving addiction. You ever watch an addict come off of drugs? You ever watch the pain that they go through physically? The withdrawals that they go through the effects of those withdrawals because you're killing the addiction all the chemical things everything that's happened in the body you're killing that you're starving it and I don't know if you've ever been starving but it I heard it's pretty bad whether it's starving in your belly or whether it's starving an addiction so porn is I put it as number one not that these are in order from least to greatest or greatest to least it's one of the major intimacy killers. Intimacy killer number two, and I'll just read these, emotional absence. Emotional connection is the key to better physical connection. If you're emotionally vacant, that is an intimacy killer. If you're emotionally vacant, if you're absent, a lot, there's a lot of fathers who have become derelict fathers and husbands, not because they're physically absent, but because they're emotionally absent. My, 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 my sister was formerly married to one of those men. He would come home and he would be there and prided and touted himself as a, as a good husband because he was physically present, but he wanted nothing to do with his wife and kids. Emotionally checked out, cut on his TV, checked out. I'm, I can be guilty of that, don't get me wrong. And it's an indictment on any man that would do that, and it is a, an intimacy killer. Again, don't expect to enjoy intimacy with your wife's husband's if you've been emotionally removed because you're not meeting her needs. Killer number three, unrealistic expectations. One spouse is expecting something to happen one way while the other is not on the same page. The result is frustration, which leads to separation. When I talk to couples about intimacy and premarital counseling, we talk about being clear with what your expectations are. We don't go and watch a movie that Hollywood has produced and say, that's what I want. Let's do that. Let's let this be the mantra of our intimate portion of our life. Be realistic with your expectations. Communicate those things. Otherwise, intimacy can diminish. Killer number four, assumed unappreciation. Assumed unappreciation. If my wife feels undervalued or unappreciated, any chance of intimacy is diminished or derailed. And rightly so. Just to be very honest with you, you know, this is conversations that Sarah and I have all the time. I'm not using anybody else as an example here. I'm trying to use use us. Is we have that conversation and it's 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 been a lot in our, our marriage. Maybe I thought that I was valuing her and 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 but she didn't feel valued. Maybe there's a miscommunication. And as crazy as it doesn't sound crazy, be careful using that word with my wife. As as interesting as it sounds, as interesting as it sounds you know she goes to work and she works very hard you know and I don't mean any harm if the dishes aren't done maybe maybe I was writing a sermon maybe I just got absent-minded maybe I was playing with the kids and my wife will say yes kids have a higher priority but she can't help but feel that when she's home and she she takes care of the house not because it's her job we have a shared responsibility in that when I'm home I do my part I'm not doing something for her because it's my responsibility as well. And that's something we men need to need to take ownership of. You know, you're partnering together. There are things that are yours and things that are your spouse's. And that's not to diminish the role of headship and helpmate, by the way. But if my wife comes home and there's dishes everywhere, like I said earlier, and there's maybe clothes that are folded, she's she just doesn't like the clothes to be folded, and not put away. You know she'll fold them all put away a lot of the times but there's things that i do or don't do that makes her feel taken advantage of or undervalued or underappreciated and mentally she shuts down is that fair to say she shuts down i'm like what did i do with this time what did i do and and we 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 had to get to a place where we had this conversation you understand we had to get to a place where she could articulate these things because i'm like i don't i didn't sin against you there's a there's a juice cup in there how is that a crime against the holy God what what happened this is not warrant divorce honey you know not that she ever does she never uses that against me she never threatens divorce what is going on but it's a deep it's a more deeply rooted issue and she would admit maybe she has something to work on there as well about her identity in Jesus and where her value comes from it's not a great idea for her to come home and feel undervalued, and me say, "Well, it's a gospel issue: get right or get left, honey." I don't say that. I don't say that. That's wrong, and that's not a passive-aggressive shot at my wife at all. You know, sh- these are things that she said. She has to work through this, but I also have things that I have to work through because I don't want her to feel undervalued or unappreciated, because those are definitely intimacy killers. And I don't just mean intimacy in the sense that, you know, baby-making intimacy. I mean Just enjoying one another. Because it's hard to do that when you're mad at each other. A few more things just to read. Be careful of objectifying your spouses. This is when we consider them as a means by which we can gain pleasure rather than a person with whom we have a relationship. We objectify our spouses when we place our pleasure above, above their own needs. Objectification can occur in many ways, and I won't go. I won't go through all that for time's sake. Um, so I want to say this from First Corinthians because I think this matters. Because a lot of times we use intimacy as a as leverage. We use intimacy to punish one another, which is which is wrong. Be very careful of that. Your husband makes you mad. Maybe you didn't do the dishes. Maybe he didn't do what he said he was going to do, so you feel undervalued. I get that, okay? So you decide, well, I'm just going to withhold intimacy from him. That'll show him. That's sinful. It's wrong. The Bible does talk about taking seasons away, but that is upon agreement for the purpose of prayer, fasting, and all of this. It's a spiritual thing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let me just read this to you, and I just have... Application things to read and not expound on and I'm done Here it says in first in first Corinthians chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 now concerning the matters about which you wrote It is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman But because of the temptation to sexual morality each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights And likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have the authority over her own body but the husband does likewise the husband does not have the authority over his own body but the wife does so there's a mutuality there there's a reciprocity there okay now a feminist would love to come up to this verse and say oh my goodness you know if it just stopped with the wife does not have a uh, rights over her own body well we'd have all kinds of fun discussions but it doesn't just say that it says both both belong to one another so, I think it's important that we consider the role that that reality plays in the intimacy between husband and wife. Choosing intimacy or sexual inactivity in marriage is just as bad as choosing sexual activity outside of marriage at times. There are various excuses or turnoffs that keep each spouse at bay when they, when the other is desiring intimacy. And I talked about some of those relationship killers. But I just wanted to add that in there, First Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. There's more I could say on that. Don't have time. not going to say it. So let me close with this. Let me just read to you five statements for application, okay? There's more to this. And again, for those of you visiting with us, I know I didn't walk through any specific passage, you know, Show me some grace on that. That's not normally how we do it, but I think you'll find that these principles are biblical. Don't let children become the center. Of your marriage. Some of you may balk at that on this Mother's Day, but let me say this. It began with you and your spouse. And if all things come to pass, your kids will be grown and they will leave. And then it's you and your spouse. The most important aspect of your family is the husband and the wife it is because none of it would be there if it were not for the husband and the wife keep that intact and everything that goes with it to make sure that things are healthy and right in the eyes of God understand the times understand context understand one another women are driven emotionally and I'm making a generalization I know I'm not a woman but I think this is pretty close to right. <laughs> women are driven emotionally and children provide emotional needs in women to where they don't necessarily look for it in marriage. If women are, 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 thrive on meeting emotional needs or having emotional needs met, the husband's not doing that or they're not experiencing that with their spouse, the wife can easily draw and get that need from children. A lot of infidelity happens because women sometimes draw that and receive that from outside sources like pastors, close friends, confidants, colleagues. That's how we end up in these situations. There's a book on this whole thing called Finishing Strong by Steve Farrar where he walks through hundreds of pastors that left the ministry and it started with a counseling situation and these pastors were meeting the emotional needs of women. And it's not that these women's were, women were super attracted physically to these pastors, but those pastors met those emotional Emotional needs and things spiraled out of control. So understand one another to the best of your ability. There must be an economy of grace between you and your spouse. Knowing how you're wired. Knowing what your needs are. Communicate those things. Application number three. Don't make spontaneity the measure of good intimacy. I have a pastor friend that actually schedules intimate time with his wife. And some of you may think, well, that's just... That doesn't seem natural that doesn't seem right you know I don't want him to have to pencil me in I get all that I understand that I understand it but from their perspective their lives are so busy they're like we're not gonna miss opportunity to invest in one another we're gonna make sure it happens at every level conversationally experientially every every single thing so I think that's a good word communication and expectation be realistic about your expectations. Communicate those things. Be sure to communicate with one another about desires, likes, dislikes. Be clear about expectations. Women, and I, I tell my wife a lot, I cannot read your mind, honey. I don't mean to put that on every woman, I do not. For, for us, that is a conversation we have. Did you feel that way? Why didn't you tell me that? Make time and plan ahead for intimacy. Be intentional about these things. Enjoy it in its right and proper context. Understanding that God has given us these things for a malt uh, for, for 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 many reasons. For enjoyment, for fruit bearingness, but then so that we might have an idea of Christ's deep and abiding affections for his bride and God's deep and abiding affections for his children. I think that's important. There are a lot of other roads i could go down with intimacy but that's what i chose to do today um, took a good bit of time today appreciate your patience appreciate your maturity even though we had some giggly boys over here um had to thank you for your maturity and we're going to uh pray and we'll be dismissed okay father thank you for the sobriety of mind that comes with the biblical text as they are authored by you. I'm thankful that we can approach these things and if we're able to shed off any tainted worldview that we may have because of what we've been exposed to all of our lives, if we can approach the scriptures in the right way, we can see the beauty of all of these things. We can read Song of Solomon and it's good and it's right and it's pure. We don't understand everything and some of the language is way over our head. But We get the principle, we get the concept, we get the mantra of what's happening. We see it as good, we see it as beautiful. Lord, intimacy plays such a major role in our marriages. You've given us desire, you've given us these, 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 these ways that we're wired. And you've given us an outlet, you've given us a context to experience these things at all levels of intimacy. And, Lord, so many marriages, because of various reasons, aren't enjoying those things for various reasons. And my prayer is that if those things are wrong, that these people would repent. That they would turn their eyes back in towards one another, rather than fantasy, rather than unrealistic expectations, rather than something that doesn't exist. or they might find one another again in a way that is right and true and pure a way that is God honoring and that you would allow them to experience those levels of intimacy like they've never experienced them before that would bolster that would help that will improve their marriages because so many look so good on the outside but they're lacking in so many ways behind closed doors and Lord you've given it to us for so many reasons that are all God-honoring. So help us delight in one another in a way that's right. Help us in a way that is modest, that is right, that is wholesome and holy, to be a representation that is pure and right of sexuality so that the world might see, that the world might understand how these things can be enjoyed to their fullest in a context that is right and for a purpose that is right. And Lord, we thank you again for these mothers here on this Mother's Day. I thank you for their witness. I thank you for their faithfulness to their children. pray that you would continue to shape them, to grow them into pillars for the Christian faith. That they might be a voice to so many women that have been sold a bill of goods with regards to biblical femininity and womanhood. And that these women here would take pride in their role, whether it's as a grandma or whatever, that they would see the value in the role that you've given them by your design and for your purpose. And they would own that and be a representation to the world that is right, true, and pure. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.